Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, after mass shootings or during heated debates about gun laws, one group of victims is often overlooked, children. Each year in the U.S., thousands of children are killed or injured after finding unsecured guns in their homes. Millions more endure psychological wounds from losing loved ones or from school lockdowns and other reminders that the threat of gun violence is near. In his new book, Children Under Fire, An American Crisis, Washington Post reporter John Woodrow Cox tells the stories of these children. He joins us after this news. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Eight people are dead after a shooter opened fire at a FedEx facility in Indianapolis. And that number only accounts for the mortal toll, not the mental and emotional toll the shooting will exact on loved ones, whole communities, and as John Woodrow Cox tells us, on children. In his new book, Children Under Fire, Cox shows the price being paid by kids for our nation's many gun deaths and also the unrelenting threat of them. John Woodrow Cox, welcome to Forum. Thanks so much for having me. I'm sure this has happened to you before, where you prepared to talk or write about gun violence in the U.S., and then another horrific and traumatic incident occurs. Uh, in our case, of course, uh, it's the mass shooting in Indianapolis, and then also the release last night of video of the police shooting of 13-year-old Adam Toledo. Mm-hmm. Where does your mind go when you see these images and headlines? You know, it's it's always uh, deeply painful because, you know, I know it does not have to be this way. It, it brought me back really to uh, the day of Parkland. You know, that, that day I was at my desk following uh, the hearing of the shooter who I feature in the book, this the shooter in South Carolina. So I'm following these really gruesome details uh, live of this hearing. And I look up and see on TV children being 
wheeled out of the school in Florida. And, and that's what it feels like every time, uh, you know, that I'm immersed in this and then this happens and you have this sort of flood of attention again. And it, it just doesn't have to be this way. One of the things your book clearly shows throughout is that one of the factors in the frequency of shootings and gun deaths is that our country is saturated with guns and with easily right. accessible firearms. And in 2020, we even saw gun sales hit record levels. Right. What effect does that have on children's ability to access guns? Well, you know, what we've just seen, right, I think is a perfect example is why does a seventh grader have a gun? So much of this discussion will be about, uh, you know, when did he drop the gun? Should the officer have pulled the trigger? Seldom is the discussion about how did a seventh grader get a gun to begin with? You know, so much of the problem in this country as it relates to kids is simply that access to your point is that during the course of this conversation, a child will inevitably find a gun in their home or neighbor's house and shoot themselves or a parent or a friend or a sibling. This happens constantly and we so seldom talk about it. You know, it's, it's uh, a, creates a, a huge amount of opportunity for suicide uh, and, you know, really increases that risk a great deal beyond, you know, some sort of criminal act that a child, you know, might commit with a gun. I, I use this one sort of example all the time. If children did not have access to guns, well more than half of the school shootings since Columbine would not have happened. You know, that alone, I think, is such a striking uh, data point is if we just did this one thing, it would make a huge difference in the lives of children. I was really struck by stats in your book, but also in your reporting of just how, you know, since 1999, children have committed at least 145 school shootings, 80 percent of those with or 105 in which the weapon source was identified, that 80 percent right. were from the child's home. I also saw the recent stat that the number of people killed by children in unintentional shootings between March and December of 2020 spiked 33% from, from 2019. That, that's really incredible. And I guess it connects directly with what you were just saying earlier about following this shooting in South Carolina when Parkland hit, because that, of course, was a 14-year-old boy who went on a shooting rampage. Right, exactly. And, you know, in his case, uh, he was really the first person to wake me up to this question of, well, how, how are kids getting access to weapons and what laws do we have that mandate to adults that they not get access to those weapons? Because in, in his case, you know, this was a kid, unlike many kids who get access to guns, this was a kid who was had, had many, many red flags. He had been uh, expelled from school because he brought a machete to school. He had threatened to kill students. Um, he was obsessed with torture. He was obsessed with other school shooters. He had, you know, fallen into this sort of internet world of research into, uh, you know, who's the best shooter, who's killed the most people. So this was clearly a kid who should not have had access to a lethal weapon. And yet his father kept his pistol right next to the bedside table. What he really wanted, though, what the gunman really wanted was his dad's assault rifle. He had you know, a semi-automatic rifle and, and the te this teenager thought it was locked in a gun safe. And you know, the way that that uh, chapter concludes, after this, you know, this teenager took the gun, he shot his father in the back of the head, he drives to um, this school and open fires on a group of uh, first graders, 
killing one. You know, this was a shooting that ended in 12 seconds, which is why most of us haven't heard of it because his gun jammed. But the gun that he really wanted, that he thought was in the safe, was in his father's closet. He just didn't look there. So that's the difference in us all having heard of him and not having heard of him. Just if he had just turned and looked in the closet, there inevitably there would have been, uh, you know, a dozen first graders who died instead of instead of just one. The boy who did die was six-year-old Jacob Hall, and one of the people that you focus on in your book is Jacob Hall's best friend Ava Olson. Can you tell us about Ava? Sure. So, you know, Ava was this, um, she was, you know, a first grader as well. Uh, Jacob was the smallest boy in first grade. He was, uh, and he kind of, everybody viewed him as sort of their little brother. And uh, Ava had just walked out on the playground for recess. Uh, She had her cupcake in her hand because it was a little boy's birthday. And this 14-year-old, as he pulls up, open fires and and Ava drops her cupcake and she runs and very quickly she realizes that Jacob this boy who she loved uh, was not with her and she finds out later that that Jacob was shot and uh, he, he died a few days later and you know I focus much of the book on Ava and this other little boy be, because neither of them were physically harmed by gun violence. So they aren't considered legally, they're not considered victims of gun violence in this country, but they've both been devastated. And that is especially true of Ava. You know, she has gone on to have really severe PTSD. She's on antipsychotic medication and antidepressants. Uh, she doesn't go to school anymore. This was pre-pandemic. She quit going to school because she, she just couldn't handle that environment. Uh, she's harmed herself. Um, she has these really violent outbursts. And, you know, she's just a totally different person than she was before. And again, it was it was 12 seconds from beginning to end that did this to her. I want to actually read a quote from your book where you describe one of her temper tantrums that you witnessed. She headbutted her mother and then you write, her eyes appeared dilated and her voice now laced with a high-pitched rage sounded unrecognizable as though it had been digitally altered and sped up. I was also struck by how psychiatrists and others you talked to said that for kids and for trauma, it's not really one event that their brain revisits it thousands of times so that they become these constant events that they are reliving or that are activating their stress responses. And I thought that was really enlightening. One of the things that does help her, you mentioned this other little boy, is her meeting this boy named Tyshawn McFadder. Can you tell us about Tyshawn? Sure. So uh, I met Tyshawn almost exactly four years ago. It was in March of 2017. Um, his father had just been had been killed. Tyshawn uh, was in second grade at the time. He, he growing up in Southeast DC and in a particularly violent part of the city. Um, one morning, just mid-morning, he was at school and his dad was shot to death in his car. He was shot five times, um, you know, and, and it, it was devastating for Tyshawn. But for Tyshawn, unlike Ava, this was not his introduction to gun violence. He had been on a playground once when someone opened fire and, and he was, you know, a friend tackled him to the ground to cover his body. Another time he was playing video games in his uh, dad's bedroom and someone opened fire and he... Uh, 
dove behind the bed. You know, when I met Tyshawn, you know, and I walked into his house, there was a bullet hole in the front door. Hmm. And, you know, as an eight-year-old, he knew uh, four people personally, not just people he'd heard of, but actually people he knew personally who'd been shot to death by the time he was eight. So, you know, this has been a defining part of his life uh, by the time he became a second grader. And then, you know, this remarkable connection happens as I write this story for the Washington Post about Tyshawn and Ava, you know, because I was going to write about her. She learns about Tyshawn. Her mother shows uh, her this photo of him and she decides this really speaks to who Ray, Ava really is beyond her trauma. She decides that he looks like he needs a friend. So she writes him a letter and basically just saying, will you be my pen pal? And it begins this incredible friendship that you know is still going on today. They uh, exchange letters, they um, FaceTime and send each other gifts. And you know, the, the tragedy is that this bond is entirely over gun violence. That's what they have in common. And that's what has bonded them. And it's it's just such a uniquely American friendship. Do you think their reactions are rare or more common than we realize for kids who, as you say, were not themselves physically injured, but witnessed or are near this kind of violence? These are much more common than we realize. And, and two specific examples jump out right away. Tyshawn's father was shot uh, as part of a series of shootings that on this road that ran near his school. After those happened, the school asked its students, this was a school that only went up to third grade. So most of these kids are six and seven and eight years old. They asked them to draw uh, representations of, of things they don't like in their community, violence in their community. And a bunch of six and seven-year-olds drew these vivid pictures in crayon of people dying on the street, of people being shot to death, of funerals, of gravestones. And, uh, you know, it really spoke to me to, you know, these kids aren't talking about it. None of these kids have been shot themselves. And yet uh, here they are depicting this. This is in their minds all the time. Hmm. We're talking with John Woodrow Cox, an enterprise reporter for The Washington Post and author of the book, Children Under Fire, An American Crisis. Do you have an experience involving kids and gun violence to share? Or for parents and caregivers, how do you approach gun safety with children? Give us a call at 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum or email us, forum at kqed.org. More after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with John Woodrow Cox about his new book, Children Under Fire, an American Crisis, about kids and gun violence. Woodrow Cox says that America has grossly miscalculated the epidemic's true scope, and his book tries to shed light on the price that's being paid by children. Give us a call if you have any thoughts, questions, or stories to share about kids and guns. 
gun violence. If you have thoughts about how you approach gun safety with children or have wondered about the best way to do that, the number 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum, and you can email us at forum at kqed.org. Andy writes, how do I approach gun safety with kids? I don't own guns. It's literally that simple. Sadly, though, um, John Woodrow Cox, it sounds like Andy, you know, may may be becoming the minority here. It just really does sound like um, I mentioned the stats in 2020 and how Americans there were record gun sales in 2020 as well. It does just sound like we have so many and so much of what we need to understand now is how to deal with the fact as a society that so many are out there so that we can avoid these kinds of incidents that create the kinds of trauma that you described about Ava and Taishan. What are your thoughts on just more broadly, what can what can be done to try to limit access, since that, as we talked about, was one of the first things that seemed to play a major role in these things. Right. I, I think that that's a place to begin is, uh, you know, there's so much discussion about uh, assault weapons bans and, um, you know, other things that would maybe address gun sales. But, you know, what we know is there's as many as uh, 400 million guns. There may be even more right now. There are more guns in this country than there are people. And those are guns already in circulation. So we have to realize that whatever new laws are passed, we have to also address the guns that are already out there. The easiest and quickest thing that we could do right now is uh, prevent those children from getting access to those weapons. And, you know, there's been a lot of um, sort of review of, okay, what laws uh, work? The Rand Corporation did this great sort of review to say, you know, what, what is backed by the most evidence? They found that child access prevention laws were backed by the most evidence of, of any laws. That includes, you know, universal background checks or red flag laws, assault weapons bans. These laws specifically were, were shown to work uh, by the most research. And what those do basically is they say, gun owner, uh, you are obligated to keep your gun from falling into the hands of a, of a child. And if uh, the, the strongest of these laws say that if your negligence leads to that child getting the gun and harming themselves or someone else, then you can be held criminally liable. A lot of that is simply about education. Most gun owners, in my experience, want to do the right thing. They're not malicious. They don't have ill intent. They certainly don't want a child to take their gun and shoot themselves or someone else with it. They suffer from ignorance because there is this uh, fatal misconception among gun owners in this country that you can educate a child out of making a bad decision with a gun. And it is fundamentally untrue. You can't do it. Study after study after study have shown that to be true. One study that uh, really two, I guess, if I have time to reference both of them, that really jump out. Uh, One study found that the best way to predict a suicide rate, a a juvenile suicide rate in a state, is not by looking at the number of children who have previously attempted suicide. It is looking at the proportion of homes with a gun. Hmm. So just knowing how many guns are in this state, how many homes have a gun, directly correlates with the suicide rate. And it's because access to lethal means leads to a much higher rate of suicide. If a a child has access to a knife or a bottle of pills, 
versus a firearm, uh, those are totally different things because you, you generally survive uh, taking pills or cutting your arm. You almost never survive a gunshot wound. Uh, and another uh, study that really drives home this point, there was a, a survey of parents in the rural South and they asked gun-owning parents, they said, uh, does your kid know where your gun is? And among the group who said, no, my kid doesn't know that, about 40% of the kids did know where their mm -hmm. gun was. And then they asked uh, of those same parents, uh, how many of your kids have played with your gun, have taken it out and handled it? And among the ones who said no, about one in four of those kids had taken the gun out and played with it. So, you know, that just speaks to this disconnect between gun-owning parents and their children who either because they're depressed, they want to get that gun and harm themselves, or they're just curious. So they want to show their friends. This happens literally every day. We're talking with John Woodrow Cox about kids and gun violence, and you, our listeners, are with us. Let me go to Anne in Redwood City. Hi, Ann. Hi. I, I wanted uh, to see if your guest would speak to the fact that we talk so much about children being resilient. And yet I, I think children maybe are not as resilient as we like to think. I mean, then they, they, maybe they pass through this horrible experience, but then they grow up to be adults. And then when they're adults, we talk about how their health is bad, and we trace that back to childhood experiences. We talk about their adult behavior and trace that back to childhood experiences. So I, I just wonder if you could talk about that, that expectation we have that children are resilient and they're going to just live through it and be fine. And I'm so glad you raised that because, John Woodrow Cox, you actually take that head on in your book. I do. I, you know, I, if I would read the paragraph, I actually have it in front of me. If I, I, I love that question because uh, would you mind if I just read that no, little please. portion? So I open this section with this. I say, uh, I begin with this in quotes. Children are resilient, people say, because they've heard other people say it, most often when kids faced hard times. After years of reporting on those hard times, it's a saying I came to despise. It ignores the pain individual children carry, even if they seem okay, and it assumes that kids are monolithic, all of them sharing some innate quality that allows them to weather adversity. It's dismissive and based not in fact, but on a wishful belief among many adults that a child who doesn't explicitly express suffering must not be suffering. A less tidy but more accurate way to put it, children can be resilient, remarkably, in the face of difficulty. So, you know, I, I love that call because it is so dismissive and it's just often inaccurate too, is that, you know, children, uh, that doesn't uh, relinquish us sort of from responsibility to support kids, but that is often the way we look at it because mm -hmm. this kid isn't talking about it. And I think about the Taishan's classmates. These were not kids who were talking about, hey, I'm suffering trauma because of the gun violence I've seen or the body that I walked by. But then when they put it in writing, you know, when they sketch out that drawing, you know, this one little girl I think about all the time, one of Ava's classmates who two great parents, a really uh, squared away family. They both had good jobs. She lived in a really nice home and she suffered tremendously in the months immediately after. But then I went back a couple of years later, I saw her parents and her parents said, you know, she never talks about it. The, the nightmares are gone. We don't think she's dealing with this at all anymore. And then she came out outside where we were talking and I, this little girl's name is Sienna. And I asked Sienna, does she think about it anymore? She went on to describe in vivid detail her plan 
to escape when, not if, but when the next school shooter came to her school. She knew exactly where she would run. She knew where she'd hide. She knew where she'd take with her. And she had theorized that this was a place that the school shooter would not look. And her parents were blown away. They had no idea that this was something that she was still thinking about all the time. And it just speaks to what your caller uh, uh, addressed. You know, kids can be resilient, but we have to support them. You know, we have to keep uh, uh, giving them therapy. We have to, we can't just say that, oh, they'll be okay, Mm -hmm. because often they won't. And in Ava and Tyshawn's case, it was very difficult for them to access therapy as well. It was, yes, yes, incredibly. Let me go to caller Linda in Mountain View next. Hi, Linda. Yes, good morning. Um, Can you hear me? I can. Yeah, thank you so much. First of all, thank you so much about your comments about resilience. And um, and as you just mentioned, um, access to therapy is so important. What I wanted to bring up, and I'm sorry I was a little late into the conversation, is the number of deaths by suicide by guns. And we, we know that the research says that if we can decrease that amount of time between those suicidal thoughts and access, um, to guns or any other means that will decrease the number of deaths by suicide. And so, um, and I, I really love the author's um, remarks about education, education, because I think that that's so important both for parents, for students, for the entire community. So I'll stop there and just hear um, remarks from the author about um, what he thinks about this access to um, guns around suicide. Yes, Linda, I think your comments are are spot on about impulse and then access, right, John Woodrow Cox? Absolutely. You know, there was another incredibly compelling study done out of Texas where they interviewed uh, teenagers and young adults about uh, who had survived suicide attempts. And one of the key questions was, um, you know, what was the period of time between when you uh, decided that you wanted to take your own life and when you actually attempted and for a, a significant number, a huge number, it was five minutes. So to the caller's point, if, if I decide, you know, I want to take my own life and I have a gun next to me uh, and, I, you know, and I'm taking only five minutes, it, it, it just show, it illustrates the point of, of how critical it is to not have that access to lethal means. And it's really important because nine in 10 people who survive a suicide attempt do not ultimately die by suicide. So if that child doesn't have access to that firearm, in all likelihood, they're going to go on and live a healthy and normal life uh, because they will, you know, teenagers are impulsive. We know that. There was uh, an example in the book about, uh, you know, this woman I interviewed who was a a pediatrician. She dealt with many, many gunshot victims. And the first big moment for her, she was uh, comforting these parents whose son had a girlfriend had broken up with him. He got a rifle that it was his rifle in his room. He'd gone into the room and shot himself and they couldn't understand. They said, well, we told him what to do with the gun. We told him, you know, it's not meant for that. And they didn't realize that that doesn't make any difference is that in that moment of despair, a teenager is uh, going to, you know, use whatever they have access to. And if it's a gun, they're probably not going to survive. We're talking with John Woodrow Cox about Strategies that could save lives, how to protect kids from death, life-altering trauma, and the psychological toll that that's placed on children who experience or are near gun violence. 
And if you want to join this conversation, you can do so by calling 866-733-6786, emailing us forum at kqed.org, or posting comments on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. When I think about this discussion around kids and the resiliency of kids, one of the things that also shows just how sensitive they can be was the description of reactions to lockdowns and even lockdown Mm. drills, uh, John Woodrow Cox, and the potential that those have for trauma, especially based on how they are carried out. Can you describe some of that for us and what you learned? Absolutely. You know, I, I, I wrote the book with this idea of uh, telling these very intimate stories to deliver one key message. And that was that the scope of this crisis is so much bigger than we think. We only think of the kids who get shot, who were wounded. And I don't think anything better illustrates that point than, than lockdowns in this country. Uh, we looked at, at one year of uh, one school year of lockdowns and found, and this wasn't even just the drills. This was actually full blown, you know, we're going into lockdown more than 4 million kids experienced a lockdown in one school year. That that number is probably closer to 8 million. We couldn't get all the data because no one really tracks this. And a meaningful percentage of those kids, even if it was one or 2% of 8 million, thought that they might die in their schools because the vast majority of these lockdowns were, were caused by gun violence. Those kids did not go through, in most cases, Uh, an actual shooting, but they had seen Parkland. They had seen Sandy Hook. They knew what happened when schools went into lockdown. And, you know, these children, uh, in many cases, they wept, they soiled themselves. They texted their parents over and over. We saw this. Uh, They texted their parents goodbye. In one case, I talked to a child who wrote a will saying, here's who I want to leave my toys to. So, you know, we, we just don't have a grasp on the scope of this. People won't say that those those kids are victims of gun violence, but they absolutely are. And if you look at, let's say, four to eight million every single school year, there are very few kids who won't eventually be touched by this in some way. But what do we do? Because lockdowns do have the potential to save lives. The drills do potentially have that impact. So how do we manage the fact that we live in a country where many feel those are necessary um, but it creates this kind of trauma potentially. There is a, a thoughtlessness that we societally uh, have brought to this issue. And I think part of it is that school districts are desperate to do something. So they often bring in these, you know, outside quote unquote experts who don't have maybe any experience with children or the way that children react to uh, apparent danger or to trauma. And uh, so the, the school districts that do it the best have a really sort of intelligent and thoughtful approach, and it's a, a you know, trauma-informed approach as well, so that, you know, this, this one chapter deals a lot with this, that, you know, if you have a shooting a mile and a half away, let's say there's a bank robbery a mile and a half from your school, many schools will still go into a full-blown lockdown where they lock the doors, shut everything on the outside, turn the lights off, and all the kids hide under a desk without realizing that, well, you know, maybe what we're doing to that child uh, is not worth it to protect what is, you know, a pretty distant threat. The schools that have have really taken a smart approach have levels. They have sort of graduated levels that if there is one type of threat, then maybe they'll just lock the doors and kids won't go outside for recess or lunch. But they may not even know 
that the school is in lockdown. And then if there is a more imminent or urgent threat, then they will go into that full-blown lockdown, which we do know, to your point, we do know that that has saved lives. But you know, th- there needs to be much more standard practices. There needs to be best practices at the federal level to say, hey, we've researched this. We've looked at what works and what doesn't work. And this, these are protocols that schools can follow. There hasn't been any of that sort of thought put into it because every uh, school district is sort of approaching this in a really haphazard way. And it's creating all sorts of unnecessary trauma. The best example I can think of is the school in, in Florida that uh, this was a drill, (laughs) that they um, sent out text messages saying that there was an active shooter on campus when there wasn't. And kids utterly panicked. They, they, as you would expect, you know, this was a a state that had gone through what it had gone through, many school shootings. So suddenly kids are thinking there's an actual school shooting. The the spokesman later said, well, you know, if we didn't do it this way, they wouldn't take it seriously. It was an absurd way to approach this issue. It's not a good way to train people. And it, you, then you've just created all this trauma for, for no good reason at all. It didn't accomplish anything. Wow. This listener writes, America needs to wake up to its obsession with guns and violence. Stop buying guns. Stop buying children toy guns and exposing them to violent toys, movies, and video games. Engage them in close relationships and activities that are fulfilling and life-sustaining. Prele writes, when my child was growing up, I had this very basic rule of thumb, no sleepovers and only restricted socialization with kids who have guns in their households. I myself didn't like this rule because it creates a partition between two worlds in our society, but I didn't have any other option. If you'd like to share your thoughts, you can do so 866-733-6786 on email forum at kqed.org or at KQED forum on Twitter and Facebook. We'll have more with John Woodrow Cox after the break. I'm Mina Kim. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Washington Post Enterprise reporter John Woodrow Cox, who's written a book called Children Under Fire, An American Crisis, which talks about the price that's being paid by children from gun violence. And you, our listeners, are with us, and we want to know if you have any experiences involving kids and guns that you'd want to share for parents or caregivers, how do you approach gun safety with your children? What thoughts do you have on support we can provide to kids who have experienced gun violence in some way? 866-733-6786, the number 866-733-6786. Amy in San Francisco is on the line. Join us, Amy. Thanks for waiting. Hi, thank you for the conversation and thank you to John Woodrow Cox for all of the work and attention he's bringing to this. 
I'm actually on a run, sorry, I'm out of breath, um, trying to work out the angst of the intensity of this conversation and all that it means for our children to be living in this culture of gun violence. Um, I've been working in gun violence prevention for over 20 years. I'm a therapist. One of my first jobs was bringing crisis mental health intervention to schools in the wake of Columbine. Then I had children of my own. Sandy Hook happened. I decided to get more involved in gun violence. From that moment further, I've been teaching my children about gun violence, talking with them about the ramifications of what it means to be in a society where guns are of easy access to people, talking with parents, asking parents if they own guns, asking them if they store them safely, securely, separate from ammunition, not allowing my kids to go to homes where there are guns that are not stored safely, spreading the good word with my friends, helping support students who want to organize in gun violence prevention, offering them the support as an adult who cares about gun violence and knows the impact that it has on them, making sure they have resources available to them to have their own voice, to be activists themselves, and helping everyone I know get involved in this fight because it will take every single one of us to make sure that guns are not so accessible to people in our country. Amy, it sounds like you're doing a lot, and I can ask John Woodrow Cox what he might add to that. I just had one question for you, though. When you do engage parents about this, are they understanding if you don't want your child in their home if they are gun owners? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I live in San Francisco. As I said, I went to a hippie co-op preschool. When I first got involved in gun violence, one of the first things I learned was what a basic important question it was to say to another parent, hi, yeah, I'd love to have my two-year-old come over to play with your two-year-old. Let me just ask, do you have any guns in the home? And I thought, like, this is kind of ridiculous. It's a hippie preschool. Nobody's going to say yes to this. And I was amazed that people said yes. And generally speaking, they appreciated the question. They said, wow, my goodness, thank you for asking. Um, It's kind of awkward to talk about this. We've never talked about it before. Actually didn't even realize there were guns in our home. Somebody else in my family has them. Um, But come to think of it, they're not stored safely. Um, But thanks for raising the question. We'll look into it. We'll make sure that we, you know, try to take greater precautions. Um, I think it can be an awkward conversation, but we ask parents about whether or not they're going to put sunscreen on our kids when they're spending a beach day together. We ask them about whether or not they're pets. We ask them about whether or not their swimming pools protected by a fence. Like this is a question we need to be asking our parents, especially parents of young children who are spending time with other children in a home, potentially unattended children. As John Woodrow Cox said, they know where the guns are and most of them have seen them and most of them have handled them. Well, Amy, thank you. And I don't know if you wanted to add anything, John Woodrow Cox, or react to what Amy was saying. Yeah, I mean, that's just so important. I mean, when people ask me, uh, which I get a lot, what can I do if I have, you know, gun owners in my family, you know, how can I talk to them and do what Amy did? Just just have the, the sort of bravery to raise it and just say in a respectful way, you know, do you have guns in the home? Are they stored safely? And then just you know, uh, express to them the, the need that it puts them in danger. You know, I, I heard from someone uh, yesterday, I've heard from a lot of gun owners since the, the excerpt from the book came out and then the book itself, gun owners who've, who've read it and gone out and bought gun safes. So it's, it's often not an issue of I'm negligent or, you know, oh, I refuse to do that. It is an issue of, I just didn't know any better. And, and the little boy 
in the book who I talk about, this 11-year-old who, who took his own life with his dad's gun, you know, these were incredible parents. They were devoted, loving parents. But he knew where the key to his dad's gun safe was. And so one night he gets the key and he takes his own life. You know, it, it so often goes that way. And him or his dad telling me, I just never imagined this would happen. I never once thought this was a possibility. That is true of millions of gun owners. They just don't think it could happen. Well, Michael tweets, when we were kids, we knew not to touch our dad's guns. I guess that's a thing of the past. For people who feel the need to have a loaded pistol within arm's reach, there are fast opening pistol safes that can mount to something like a bed frame. You know, could I, could I yeah, absolutely. speak to that? So there, I think that there is a little bit of a, a misnomer there is that we, you know, when I was a kid, we knew not to do that. There's never been a point in, I don't know, the last 60 years in American society that kids were not getting those guns and shooting themselves or other people. It, you know, we didn't have mass media then, but people are telling their kids the same things they've always told them. Kids are not any different. There'll be some kids who say, okay, I won't do that. You know, it goes to that statistic, right, about the, the, talking to the rural parents in the South to say, how many of your kids have handled the gun? Well, you know, three quarters of them had not handled the gun but a quarter of them had. And there's no way to look at a kid and say, you know, this kid will do it and this kid won't do it. So uh, the, the pistol safe though is a really good point. I bring that up all the time. There are pistol safes that someone can act, get access to in a matter of seconds, fingerprint safe. So there's, there's no good reason to not lock up a gun. Let me go next to caller Caroline in Concord. Hi, Caroline. Hi, how are you? Well, how are you? What's on your mind? Well, that you guys are talking about this. Um, I I grew up around guns. Uh, my dad was a gun nut, and uh, I used to go shooting with him. And I learned how to be respectful of a gun and all of that. Uh, however, uh, for my ninth birthday, um, he gave me a rifle, and um, I it was just really strange um, to get a rifle for a ninth birthday. And I was kind of a tomboy, but anyway, um, we kept it in our house. And um, in my early 20s, before I had moved out, I was suicidal. And I got that rifle out and I loaded it. And, you know, I almost I almost did it and <sighs> stopped me. But with all the knowledge, the education, the handling, the safety practices that I learned... That, that doesn't matter when you are mentally unstable and, um, you know, all of that goes out the window. And, uh, I mean, we didn't even keep the bullets in the same area as the guns. And that was, you know, my mom and my choice. But still, you know, after that, like a couple days later, I sold the rifle and I've never owned a firearm since, nor have I touched one. Um I'm in my 50s now, but, um, you know, it, it's, I think it's so important to be having this conversation. I agree with um, the fact that we are obsessed with guns in this country. It needs to stop. Um, I, I feel so bad for all the children in schools that have to deal with this. It's so traumatic, and I really appreciate this conversation. Thank you. Well, Caroline, thank you for sharing that. I mean, that is not an easy story to share, and I, I really appreciate it. Yeah, I, 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 yeah, I'm so thankful for that uh, 
caller's willingness to share. I mean, it, it, it immediately took me to a, a, an anecdote in the book where um, I interviewed a, a pediatrician in South Carolina. You know, this is a state, obviously, where people hold guns dear. It's a very sensitive issue. But she would make a habit with every parent who would come in to say, do you have a gun in the house? Is it stored properly? And there was one time when she had a teenager who was feeling depressed and he'd come in there with his parents. And the question she asked the parents, well, she asked him first, are you suicidal? And he said, no, he said, no, I'm not. Turned to the parents and said, do you have a gun in the home that he can get access to? And they said, well, yeah, we do. And she said, you, you have to, you have to lock that gun up. He, he, you know, he's depressed. He's saying he's not suicidal, but you have to lock that gun up. He called her later and said it was his plan to go home that day and take his own life with that gun. But because she spoke up and said, you have to lock it up, he, he survived in the same way that, you know, I'm so thankful that your caller did as well. It's just so important for people to be willing to share because it, it happens so much more often than we think. Well, this listener writes, my daughter was in a lockdown drill at her high school. She said it was terrifying and then heartbreakingly told me, Mom, if this happens at my school, I'm not sure we would survive. I think I might be killed. The trauma mm. of the drill has left an imprint, and I'm glad we're talking about the psychic toll that being a gun-obsessed nation takes on us all. Celia writes, I was in fourth grade when Mayor Moscone and Harvey Milk were assassinated in San Francisco. My classmate's father, Roger Boas, was the city administrator, and his office was next to Moscone's. All day, my friend in our class were getting updates about his safety, and it haunted me for years. I remember crying that night for Dan White's children, who were my age, imagining how scared they were to have their daddy in prison. Everyone is so scarred by guns. Let me go to Yuko in San Jose. Yuko, thanks for waiting. Hi. Um, my question is whether gender is kind of like a big elephant in the room, because I've noticed a lot of the cases you've mentioned involve boys, um, and I ask this because I come from a country where there's no guns. We're from Japan and I took my family to Legoland, um, a few years ago. And I noticed that so many boys were building guns out of these Duplos that the kids could just play with. And, um, hmm. The girls were building buildings and other things that were not guns. And to me, I just kind of blew me away that most of the boys were building guns. So if you could just talk about the gender a little bit. Thanks for the question, Yuko. John Woodrow Cox? Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, uh, we see the gender split in every single element of gun violence. Um, you know, whether it's school shooters, school shooters are overwhelmingly male, uh, the same thing with children who accidentally shoot uh, friends uh, or children who take their own lives intentionally. Uh, it is overwhelmingly male. You know, there's a, a fascinating detail about uh, suicide and methods of suicide. Men survive suicide at a much, much lower rate than women in the United States because of the method, because they, they tend to use guns uh, much more often than women do. The exception is women in the military. And it's because women in the military are more familiar with firearms as they've been trained with them. They're more comfortable with that weapon. So women in the military, when they attempt suicide, survive at a much lower rate. And, you know, it, it, it raises the question in my mind that, you know, educating a child really deeply 
on how to use a firearm and then coupling that with that, giving that child access to that firearm, is that making them more likely to turn to that uh, method when they are depressed? You know, to your caller's earlier point, she was from, it was her gun, right? That was her rifle. She was familiar with it. She'd shot it. She knew how to use it. That's what she turned to or nearly turned to in that moment. That's something that we desperately need to research to say that, in fact, is all this education for these kids and glamorization of guns, when they have that moment of depression, does that make them more likely to take their life with that weapon? Well, Maddie writes, we need a national campaign to eliminate the myth created by the gun industry that guns make us safer. Health and Human Services needs to again be allowed to collect and publish data about gun violence since this was blocked by Congress. Many people buy guns because they believe they will use it to defend their family, but the actual data show people are far less likely to be shot by that people are far more likely to be shot by their own gun, and they rarely can stop a shooter even if they do have a gun. There are a couple things I want to just ask you. As a last question, um, John Woodrow Cox, which is, is the influence of the gun lobby, the National Rifle Association waning as, as people say, and are you seeing positive change or significant change in gun policies in America since the perception, certainly after Sandy Hook, has been that there's been very little, but you, you've pushed back on that. Yes, I think that's a really important point. Uh, you know, people forget that uh, Mom's Demand did not exist before Sandy Hook. Uh, Giffords did not exist before Sandy Hook. People often don't realize that, that Gabby Giffords did not start her organization because she was shot. She started it because of Sandy Hook. These are organizations that have poured tens of millions of dollars into this fight. They have seen enormous progress at the state level. Uh, and certainly, Americans, when you poll them on these issues, we're not nearly as divided as people think. Americans overwhelmingly support things like universal background checks, and that includes gun owners. Gun owners uh, overwhelmingly support things like child access prevention laws. Where we are split is on Capitol Hill, and that, I think, is where we see the gun lobby's influence come up the most. You know, the gun lobby used to rate people between A and F, where they would say, oh, this senator, we give him an A on the report card. They hide those now. Because, and that's a real sign of the shift, is that they don't, in fact, want everybody to know that this senator uh, or congressman has an A from the gun lobby, because mm. that's not as uh, something that, that will be as advantageous politically as it once was. Well, the, the legislation that right now is on Capitol Hill is going to come down to three or four Americans. That's it. It's going to come down to three or four people. It's not hundreds. So I think it's often overlooked that we're not as split as we think we are. Well, it's always good to, to hear that and end on that note. John Woodrow Cox, thanks so much for your book, Children Under Fire, an American Crisis. Thank you for having me. This was such a great conversation. In celebration of National Poetry Month, we have asked listeners in April to submit recordings of their original poems. This week, we're going to end the hour by featuring two poems. And first up is high school student Jasmine Capadia in Palo Alto. My name is Jasmine Capadia, and this is Sunshine Baby. In June of 1979, when our edges run like mango juice down chins, she dunks me into the ocean and I come up with my nose dripping. On her tongue, there is a paper crane, electric blue, like my favorite flavor of sour candy. She drips melted wax all over my feet, tips the can of soda into her mouth. 
I catch the tail end of a prayer, sneak glances as she slips out of her swimsuit. Her collarbone is the most beautiful thing I have ever seen. The sun is bright in my eyes, God in the sharp intake of breath. I write poems about summer in November, having just found the words for the way the sky stuttered. Like, hey, I don't know if you'll ever see this, but, and it shatters, rains chunks of blue on my shoulders. Her teeth sink into the plump part of my lip. That was Jasmine Kapadia with her poem, Sunshine Baby. Closing out our mini poetry segment today is Joe Podvin. This is Joe Podvin with my poem, Open Invitation. Would you please explain to me this preference for gravity? This lingering upon the shore legs plastered to the sand. When weightlessness awaits at hand, bright buoyancy abounds for free. Leave lead behind, enter the sea. Discover, know yourself to be mere tiny moat, bit of delight held, embraced by liquid light. Release to play, awash in glee, loosened from sobriety, floating highland basty. That was Joe Podvin with her poem, Open Invitation. Thanks to Jasmine and Joe for sharing their poems with us today. And Forum is produced by Judy Campbell, Susan Britton, Ariana Prail, Blanca Torres, Caroline Smith, Tina Lauerberg, Crystal Consal, and Grace One. Our engineers are Danny Bringer and Katie McMurrin. Our interns are Leslie Torres and Kimia Akbari. Our executive editor is Ethan Tovin Lindsay, and our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. I'm Mina Kim. Thanks so much, listeners, for your attention. Have a great weekend. This is Forum. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.